if it is a passive kind of ignorance, we move about in a foggy bliss of unawareness. If we make ourselves ignorant, if we actively delude ourselves, then we are making a terrible mistake. We rob ourselves of the clarity of truths. We miss the beauty as well as the full depth and worth of the universe. Good morning, everyone. This is Nube coming at you um, from Cape from from Prince of Focus Radio. Excuse me. This morning we are at KPOO San Francisco eighty nine point five. Um, you can be, hope you fully you are uh, reaching us and tuned into us also at uh, the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. Hope you are having a beautiful morning. Um, we are going to have a really good show this morning. Um, but first, I want to give a shout out to all of our friends, family and community members behind the wall. Know that you are loved and supported and that um, this show is for you. This show is for your families. So please um, tell them to tune in to this program, Prison Focus, um, every Thursday from 11 to noon. Also, I want you to... Um, um, if you do not have a subscription to our newspaper at California Prison Focus, please subscribe. Uh, write to us at California Prison Focus, 4408 Market Street, Suite A, Oakland, California, 9460 because this is a fantastic newspaper publication that is written by you, for you, um, and for your loved ones as well here on the outside, because we really cannot do this without you. We This is um, a collaborative effort. We are mighty when we stand together. So... Um, Please write to us. Also, please continue to write us letters. Um, we we want we want to hear from you. Um, we listen to your concerns um, here at California Prison Focus. So um, I want to make an announcement uh, before we get started with our um, with our guest. Um, tomorrow is Solitary Man. This is tomorrow, Friday, February twenty eighth, six thirty. PM at Place Community Center, 1121 64th Street, Oakland. We are going to have, there's going to be a panel. This is an amazing show. It is um, a two man show between Charlie Hinton and Fred Johnson. Um, and it is fantastic about the, um, the relationship between um, a, a supporter and um, a 
a lifer on the inside. There's going to be a panel discussion with our very own Minister King from California Prison Focus, who will be talking about the California prisons since the historic hunger strikes. Um, and there will be also Dijanette, who is, uh, will be talking about the campaign to drop life without parole sentencing, uh, which is a great segue into our program this morning. So today we have with us in the studio, um, we have with us Kelly Ann Savage. I would like to introduce her. Kelly is the uh, Drop LWAP, which is Life Without Parole, coordinator for California Coalition for Women Prisoners. She's a 46-year-old white woman. Kelly was just recently released after 23 years of incarceration. Governor Jerry Brown commuted her Life Without Parole sentence in December of 2017, allowing her a chance for a parole hearing. In November 2018, Kelly was finally released. Kelly has experienced the shattering effects of both domestic violence and incarceration, in which she survived the impact on her mind and spirit. She was an inside member of CCWP for over 15 years and helped initiate first the Living Chance Storytelling Project and then the Drop LWAP campaign. And we do have Kelly with us this morning, and Kelly, can you go on ahead and say hello? Hello, everyone. I'm very blessed to have the opportunity to talk about the Drop LWAP campaign. Um, most important uh, is to know that we, no one is forgotten in this campaign. We understand that someone serving four years to 40 years all matter. And it is important to um, uplift every individual. We all know that life without the possibility of parole is a walking death row sentence. And we are attempting to end that sentence without carve-outs, without any stipulations that only certain individuals have an opportunity towards release. Everyone should have an opportunity to seek freedom and seek rehabilitation, however that looks to the individual. And in order to do that, we have to educate. And so that's what we're starting with is the education component. Fantastic. So <coughs> what is that education component? What is it that the, the listeners really need to learn? Because one of the things that you just talked to, I mean, uh, 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 the phrase that came up is just a carve out. And we're not leaving anybody behind. But what is it really that people, let's, let's get into this, about pe what people really need to know about, um, about life without parole. I mean, and I want people to really understand, imagine that. Life, you've been given a sentence that says, you don't even get a second chance. You, we don't want to hear from you. That's it. You are thrown away. You are given life without parole. What does that mean? So for the individual serving the sentence, they are denied access to certain groups, um, certain jobs, certain housing opportunities, maybe to be closer to their family because they have to be in a certain level. Um, it is not about the person's conduct. It's not about the person's change or growth. It's about numbers to CDCR. And I most important thing it, to remember is that everybody has an opportunity to change. It's whether they seek that change in growth inside. Mm -hmm. But even then, they're not considered. So 
Right now, there's many areas that people can get relief from. One of the ones that sticks out in my mind the most, and I talk about the most, is when you're talking about someone who's incarcerated as LWAP, the average age is 19. Oh. Average um, ethnicity and, and looking at what race looks like uh, on paper, that person is African-American. And as a 19-year-old, you're, you're at a complete loss. You're told that you're worthless, you are not given any opportunities, and that even though you are that age and every other person serving a sentence is get, seeking relief or able to attempt relief due to the juvenile bills, because you're sentenced, you don't have that right. So everyone else, they are aware of the difficulties and the science uh, research and data all say that your brain is not completely developed and you don't have the ability to comprehend the end effect of a crime that, that may have been committed. Mm -hmm. You may not be aware of, of everything that's occurring or what the end result's going to look like, but because the DA chose to seek the death penalty or life without the possibility of parole, those factors don't matter. But for every single other person doing time in the system, it matters for them. You are forgotten in every single area. You can't do something as simple as apply for a certain job because of your sentence. You can't work a PIA, which is a prison industry job, to better yourself as well as provide for yourself so you don't um, have to lean so heavily on family and friends because they feel that you're not redeemable and they feel that they need to give the opportunity to someone else. Wow. Yeah. That's... Uh that just makes my head spin and my heart hurt. Yes. I mean, to think that you can just give someone a, a sentence that... Okay, like you said, I, um, everybody else inside gets a chance to try to redeem themselves. I mean, CDCR, if you're going to be... If you're going to be sentencing someone under a program that's labeled California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, but you're going to deny that rehabilitation based on a sentence, which we'll get into that, about whether that sentence there should be legal anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so we're basically just warehousing a body. We've, we've, the idea is to strip them of any sense of anything other than you are, you, you have been deemed a body that's just going to be warehoused here. Absolutely. In, in fact, right now, they're going through a lot of changes. A policy has been in place for decades, um, looking at your conduct within the, in, in, in the system. And with that, they're looking at exemplary conduct as a way to seek relief from the courts because they do understand, since they've put the label of rehabilitation on CDC, 
they do understand that there is people who change their life after a dramatic situation, and it, it has absolutely nothing to do with saying what their part in the crime may have been wasn't horrible and didn't hurt people. But now they've taken steps to change, grow, and, and mature, and most... They're learning for the first time responsibility and, and independence and how to be an active part of society. It may be the prison society, but their society. And when that happens, the system is allowed the opportunity to then look at their file, look at their growth, look at the things that they're doing today inside every single day and say, we think you may be a potential candidate for your um, county of commitment to make a decision to reduce your sentence to some degree for everyone but LWAP. When a judge is given a case that has to do with life without the possibility of parole, they have normally, in most situations, they have two choices, death penalty or life without. That's it. A jury only hears those two factors. Mm -hmm. They only get that that accountability. The, the um, when they're looking at what that person's done in their life, what they may have been through, traumas, experiences, that's how they decide whether that person is redeemable or not. Whole separate issue that should be addressed at some point because that's a heavy weight to put on anyone to say that whatever is presented at that time by that lawyer is the only factors that affected a person's life shouldn't be legal, but that is what stands today. What people don't understand is that's all the judge has an opportunity for. They can't then reduce the sentence more because uh, their only option is one of two. So if they had an opportunity to say, like everyone else, this person is, has taken groups, has, are leader of the groups, they're leading their, their positions, they're doing the work, and, and maybe they have some redeeming qualities. If we had that opportunity as an LWAP, you would, you would have a, a huge reduction in the LWAP population. Right now we have 5,212, I believe, um, LWAPs um, serving this sentence, but yet they're the people who are facilitating groups, who are creating the curriculums, who are um, mentoring and educating the other individuals inside. And so you're good enough to help our institutions, but you're not good enough for release. And that's what they hear on a daily basis. Right. So you're benefiting the system. They'll take you when you're benefiting the system, but when it's something that will benefit you as a human being, then they're denied, continually yes. denied. I was going to ask you about that number. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Is that just in California or is that in the nation? Oh, yeah, that's just California. Yeah, I wanted to make that point because I had a feeling that it was, um, and I needed to get that clear for myself. And I need the listeners Again, come back in, listeners, understand, we are talking 5,000 plus people that the system has deemed throwaways, although they are benefiting the system that's keeping them captive. Um, Kelly, so you spent 23 years of a life without parole sentence. 
And I would love for you to talk about what that was for you personally. Um, Because I know you left your sisters behind, and I know that you're doing the work on the outside, and we'll talk about that as well. Um, But what does it really mean for a young person? You were 23, right, if I have the math right. So that's still a young person. I have a a son who's 20. He's going to be 21. He's at college. He doesn't know anything, right? Yeah. So, um, and so I would love for you to, if if you would, you know, talk about that, what what that meant for you to have that that um, sentence, and then we'll kind of move into your commutation and okay. and that, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, definitely. So for me, I um, I'm a, a daughter of an incarcerated uh, mother, um, so I knew a lot about the system before um, I entered. Unfortunately, she had. Um, been in so many different times for so many different uh, numbers that I knew enough about the system to knew to know that lifers weren't going home. At that point, we were lucky to have a half of a percent. And so knowing that I was facing such a harsh sentence, um, I, I couldn't allow myself to dive into the depression and the hurt and the um, the true belief that I was unworthy and um, worthless. And that is what most LWAPs go into the system believing. Uh, they're looking at the trauma they have caused to the individuals involved in their crime as well as their own families and, and the massive effect at the same time being transferred into a place that is absolutely depressing, that is um, difficult to understand or manage, that doesn't have um, basic outline of what prison is going to be like. There, there's no um, understanding of how to do better and be better unless you seek it out. And so most fall into the trap of not knowing where they are, what they're going to do, or that they have worth. Um, For me, it was different. I knew I was home, and what was I going to do to make that a little bit better? I started to get my voice for the first time in county jail. Um, After three years of being there, it was easy for me to say, okay, now I need to get some type of education for myself, whether it was through the law library, through the regular library, just to understand. And um, and doing that, we had nothing in the institutions back then. You had NA and AA, but as someone serving 10 years or more, you couldn't attend those things because you couldn't be out at night. And so... Um, you didn't have any support or anyone to talk to. It's not like you can just say, I need to see somebody for mental health. That's really difficult to do, even when you're in a desperate situation, let alone when you're just trying to come to grips with who you are and what life is gonna be like for you. And so I knew automatically that it was about creating what wasn't created. And I started to work and support Um, get education about grief and loss and understanding what that looks like, not only for victims that, you know, we have affected, most people that are incarcerated, especially in the women's institutions, 
aren't the perpetrator of the crime. And that's a whole nother level of trauma, abuse, upset, and confusion because how am I accountable for someone else's behavior? How am I supposed to be psychic and know that they're going to take this next step? Um, or, you know, that my associations will get me into that, this type of mess. And sadly, that's a lot of the incarcerated individuals. You have a, a um, handful of people that can say, I am absolutely made a decision in my rage to make this this behavior happen. And so um, seeing that, I was able to see that there was a need to understand and come to grips with that. So I started at first with a grief um, curriculum. Me and a, a roommate friend had um, taken the steps to, to educate ourselves on what we needed to do to start groups inside and then steamrolled into several. One of my um, biggest blessings, I believe, was the domestic violence group that I was a part of. And when I was educated through the outside organizations on how to be a domestic violence peer educator, I then took the curriculum to the next level to create groups. Can I just ask what sure. groups that you were you would come into contact with that um, you were working with on the outside? So uh, we from Sacramento Ripple Effect from San Jose and Fresno PD came in on several occasions, as well as um, working with a Native American um, uh, lady who came and did trauma-based training. So we ended up with 378 hours of domestic violence training, looking at how we can help change the community we lived in and save it from some of that violence, um, allowing individuals to see that they have the ability to help the people outside, their friends and family who are in situations, and end that cycle. And mm -hmm. so with that, we were able to create four curriculums that, um, that every Monday night both um, when when the women were at Valley State and then when we transferred over to CCWF, we now continue it on Monday night, um, educating people. Start your week off with healing, growth, and change and, and betterment. And so we worked with at least 100 people at any given time in several mini groups looking at what domestic violence looks like battering its effects, you know, what it looks like to be either that batterer or how do I keep getting into relationships with individuals that the truth is I allow to treat me a certain kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, and looking at incest and rape, the sexual assault and, and how that feels and what we can do, and then um, patterns for changes about boundaries and, and how to set those because most families, not that they – set out not to teach children boundaries, but the truth is most families don't know how to create that environment and teach young people how to have those boundaries early so they don't allow situations to occur. Because most individuals, you have um, one of the main things that I tell everyone, you have five or six people on one crime. And, and you know each person is accountable for that one person's act. And mm -hmm. and so there's a lot of remorse and regret that goes with that, of course. But there's also this overwhelming sense of what could I have possibly done to deserve such a harsh sentence when I wasn't the one that committed the crime. Right. But I am accountable to being with uh, around these associates, uh, you know, for being in that environment, for being there at that time of night or that time or, you know, at that party, whatever those situations may be. It's not about a lack of accountability. It's 
I should be accountable for my part in the crime. Exactly. And how about just, a, a again, I, I bring this up quite a bit, and I, um, where are we as community members accountable? We are never asked to be so accountable, yeah. you know, until something, quote, goes wrong, right? And yes. then we're labeled as something. But the reality is, we are accountable in negative ways, us out here in the, quote, free world, right, that we, we are not really asked to pay attention to. And so I can imagine that, like on any given day, if I then all of a sudden was accountable for someone else's actions, I would be completely confused. I'm 55 and I would be confused. I would, I would, it, yes, I, I have some years on me now. And so I can say, yeah, I want to be accountable for this, but definitely not for that. And to be working in it or to be, you know, um, subject to a system that says otherwise um, is, is something that I, I think is a, also a way of thinking that I, I hope the listeners are really understanding come in, come in close to what Kelly is saying to us about that. Um, Because are you also, you you talked about a little bit before, because we were um, about um, the felony murder rule, right? And And sometimes when we look at the felony murder rule, we have people in Sacramento today, legislators that we meet with that say, oh, but that's resolved now. And it's not. Mm -hmm. You have people going out to court constantly being told, which is a blessing. Please don't get me wrong. It is a blessing that some people are getting an opportunity to be heard. Mm -hmm. Most LWAPs aren't given that option because certain criteria must take place first to get through the door. And it's a a rare, difficult process or certain criteria that must have happened at trial. There is no formula for trial. Every judge, DA, makes their own decisions about how they want to prosecute a case. So nothing is uniform. Mm -hmm. And so someone hears there's a new law that might apply to them because I know I'm not the direct shooter. No one should be a shooter. Please make that very clear. Um, I understand victims are the utmost importance in that. But if you have one gun, one body, one bullet, and five people are prosecuted in the same way, and the truth is in our system, the shooter may have less time than that female um, uh, co-defendant, which is very difficult because the first thing they say is they're the masterminds, they're the manipulators, because why are they associating with a man who would do such a crime, which is absolutely unacceptable. That's no different than saying you should have gotten out of that domestic violence situation, you should have left sooner, there was help, you could have gotten it. Right. Those myths create a um, a belief system for the jury that says it's okay to give them the, the harshest sentence. Right. And even if their sentence is 25 to life, we have children, people that are 17, 18, 21, sitting in prison right now with 205 years. That is an unacceptable sentence for anyone. Absolutely. And we're we're talking about people where there, there's certain cases where there is no body. There was a shooting that occurred 
due to a situation that happened and no one died. Not saying we are so thankful to doctors and, and medical professionals that save people, but the sentence should meet the crime. And, and in that, and you have so many people that are, are doing double life because the, the gun charges, guns shouldn't be on the streets. That's a fact. But, oh my God. but <laughs> they shouldn't be um, prosecuted as if they have multiple bodies because a gun was used. Absolutely. Yeah, we really, so now we are also, we are talking about your... We're really just scratching the surface of yeah. so many issues. Um, but again, um, these are human beings that we're talking about. Yes. And there's definitely a segment of our society um, that is being um, unjustly burdened by this idea of crime, who's a criminal, who, who are the, you know, quote, bad people. Right. And we are talking about poor black and brown women. And in this case, it's women. We are talking about poor women. Right. Yeah. And um, our society is telling us that somehow you are a kind of an outcast. You're a, you're of this particular um that you deserve this kind of treatment because you are this way. And again, we have a responsibility out here about what the kind of narrative we are building in our, in our society, in our community. I mean, if we're going to be blaming women in domestic violence cases um, and telling them that they should have gotten out, of that situation, we're really not taking the care that we need for each other. And I feel like this is really a lot of what it comes down to. I mean, a sentence of life without parole says everything about how we're looking at what we're, at what we're doing. Do we want to punish or do we want to heal, right? Um, do we want to create a society where we're caring? Someone given a set, giving a seventeen-year-old two hundred years is—we should be outraged by that. Period. Period. And yes, and I know you keep saying, and I'm so grateful that you keep saying that. You know, you want to make sure that you're sensitive to all involved, right? Because people are getting hurt. Hurt people hurt people though too that's what we have to realize in some way you can keep going back and back and somebody's getting hurt nobody's inventing violence huh. that's that's just not how it works so what are we doing to create i'm going off a little bit here but i just in listening to this please what are each of us doing how can we be accountable because if we can if we can be a, if if we're going to be held accountable five people down the line are you are, are are any of us unaccountable? Yeah, definitely. You know, so I think it's just so I just I I, I just really want to I uh, the listeners are out there and I know that they're captivated and sometimes I talk too much and um, but I I just really wanted to pipe in a little. So all right, Kelly, but please continue and. I think one of the things that is important to note is most women are thought to 
need one thing, and that's to be in that home, take care of children, and make dinner. And so when they don't fit that mold and a crime occurs, that's why they're able to say, you know, they have to come up with a reason to convict them as well in the crime because most aren't the direct perpetrators. So how are we going to do that? And that's where the manipulation and the, you know, you're, you're the mastermind of the situation comes into play. And so in backtracking that, we're, we're not looking at what trauma has occurred. Um, we did a study inside because one of the groups that I'm involved in is the Beyond Violence and Healing Trauma curriculum. And we have an um, amazing opportunity to look at where trauma started and what we believe about where, where we should be mm-hmm. and what we should be doing in life. And as we look at that, we're able to do statistics on what that looks like in our community inside. And one of the things that we found was 2% hadn't seen abuse before the age of 18. 2% had two women, that's it, out of 300 that we did our initial survey with that had not seen that. One informed me, well, I lived in the country and we kinda went to school, but we were kinda homeschooled. So I'm not saying I couldn't have saw it if I was out in the community. And I'm like, no, 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 we are blessed that we have somebody in the room that doesn't have that. She said, I don't feel normal. In this environment that I'm stuck in now, my abuse started when I got with my first husband and I had no idea where I was or what was happening and I definitely wasn't going to tell anybody because I had to be abnormal. And now I'm in this environment where that was my only interaction with abuse and I still feel like I'm abnormal because everyone around me has dealt with so much trauma and abuse. And it broke my heart that she felt abnormal instead of the other way around. Right. And and most individuals feel they're the only one. So when we don't get help at an early age, when there isn't something in the schools to say, you know what, this isn't okay, and and let's find a way to communicate that so everybody is aware of it, we're going to continue to build prisons instead of schools. Right. We're going to continue to build an environment where people are angry and they don't know how to find something better or do something better. And we have the ability now to look for those things if we can, instead of continuing to build prisons, build ways to support kids when they're younger and and teach them that maybe what's happening in the home or your uncle's home or your best friend's home that you're going to and that you're seeing isn't normal. Right. But they don't see that. They see this is normal and this is the way I'm supposed to be. Right. And they're going to have a normal reaction. Yes. Are going to have a normal reaction. Well, I'm an abolitionist, so of course I am all about no prison prisons because people need care. Yeah, is what really it is that people need, and um, they're not. People are not getting the care that they need, and the and our communities are under assault in all different kinds of ways that that you know get people um, into situations that none of us want to be in. You know, when you when you don't have a job, when you don't feel like you can take care of your family, when you you don't know yourself, when uh, there there are 
people having such a hard time with, you know, mental health issues and there are drugs involved. Yeah, things are things are falling apart. Things are chaos. And if there's nowhere else to go except to be arrested and put into prison, where then you are also not going to get the services that you need unless you say, like you were saying, you're going to you're going to try to seek those out. You're asking people that are suffering trauma to ask for the things that they need. And most, a lot of people don't know how to do that, right? Yeah. But let's go back around because you were talking about something that was very positive when you were talking about your experience. And I think that's also really, really important. And I think this is also part of what we need to celebrate when we're talking about you were a person that was life without parole. They were throwing you away. And here you are inside creating programs to, to you were trying to, to find your own way and then extending it out to other people. That's not a throwaway person. These are the people, this is what we need. We need each other, right? And so how are we elevating that? Because that's so important. And I and you, you've helped hundreds of, of women inside. So I, I, I would love to, you know, kind of move from that place sure. or continue to talk about that because that also, I mean, you spent 23 years. Of course, I've wondered, did you need to even spend 23 years? But you did spend 23 years. Um, so let's move from, from that place of creating these programs, obviously helping many women inside as well as yourself, and how that contributed to your commutation possible. Or Awesome. that process yes awesome um so for me it it became easier to be the voice for the inside um it was a way i created that voice because i didn't have it before incarceration and so it was something easy like fighting a policy with staff you know arguing back and forth about way, the way things should be because everything's up to interpretation and then i realized that if if we don't create a way to educate each other, then then we were going to fail, um, and that the cycle of constantly getting in trouble inside the system was going to continue. So what could we do differently? And we knew that we couldn't do an AA because we had a certain amount of time and we couldn't go out, and so we created groups on the weekends because we could be out during the day, and we created um, a, a thing called networking, which was several different individuals came up with a curriculum, and that that um, curriculum was then added to every yard, and we would meet at you know different times at different places to educate about everything from you know self-esteem to um, you know looking at why stress uh, you know creates an environment where you get depressed and and how can you relieve that stress or what do you do about that depression? Um, for me, um, one of the ones that I taught was sign language. I didn't know it well, um, but I'm hearing impaired, and I knew that I needed to know, and I'm wow. eventually going to lose my hearing. So we just got a book, and we started figuring it out and creating sentences and, and ways to do it. Now I'm in a real sign language class, and at the other prison I did learn a lot of sign language because they had a class, but everywhere should have an opportunity to learn about something. And so as an LWAP, when I started, we couldn't take college. You can go to high yeah. school, but you couldn't, you know, to get your GED or, or high school, but that was it. 
And so um, they said, basically, you're not going to leave the institution and you're basically walking death row. We cannot take an opportunity from somebody else to give you college. And what I did was I presented what I was doing, what I did have an opportunity to do. And at that point, I had learned um, a, a lot about theology and um, I had done four different uh, theology degrees and the person interviewing us to allow us college, um, she was fascinated. She wanted to do the same thing. And so that got me in the door to start putting the pressure on. And I just kept saying, we are the ones that are going to be here. Don't you want us to educate ourselves, to do something positive? I understand that your grantees aren't willing to allow that. Can we write them a letter and tell them? And these individuals were helping provide books to the institution so that people could go. And we're like, but if our families and we as individuals pay for our books, can't we go? We're not gonna cause a hardship. It's a it's a bog waiver. You're, the system is not paying for this. And she agreed finally. Once she started getting her paperwork for the theology degrees, and I had to produce all the documents of things I was working on, then she was willing to listen, and she gave me my first shot. By the year's end, we had nine other LWOPs in the program as well, and that was in one year. I have to hand it to you, girl. That is that is just so powerful because y'all that are listening out there cannot see my face because there's a part of this that also just makes me so angry. Like, and you, obviously you must have pushed through that because yes. the simple fact of you having to fight through, I'm not a burden on you. Like yeah. that is, that's infuriating, but I'm also just, I'm so impressed that you were able to do that under those circumstances. I mean, you're already being told you're a throwaway because you're an LWOP. You've, you've gone through that. You've this incredible strength of mind. Um, and I know that you're also saying that you're not the only one, yeah, right? And I just, I, I, I hope the listeners hear this and I think about wh what we are paying as taxpayers which I don't really like putting it in this in this sense, but this is always the argument, you know. We are paying so much money to have you captured this way and controlled this way. And you're having to fight to say, I want to educate myself um, and, and no, I'm not actually a throwaway. How about all the people that you are going to educate that aren't LWAP? Yes. What about that? They're not providing it. You're fighting to provide for it. So to me, that's just a straight indictment about what this system is doing. They're saying, no, we actually don't want you to be educated. We don't want anybody around here to be educated. Because if you're educated, you might do like Kelly Savage has done and get yourself out of there and yes. others. Yes, definitely. And so thank you. I just, sorry, I just had to, I had yeah. to again, pipe in. Yeah. These folks know. <laughs> um. And I think yeah. um, th that led to the commutation. Not, yes. I, um, I was back and forth in court for many years. I was under the domestic violence law and back and forth, back and forth. Court of Appeals kept granting it. My county, of course, was never going to do any movement, any movement at all. So 
I knew there wasn't going to be an opportunity. Um, my lawyers were like, no, we're going to try again, and then maybe we'll try a commutation. And I was lucky enough to have um, support of California Coalition for Women Prisoners, and uh, Kobe Lenz was one of um, my main supporters, and she kept pushing the lawyers and saying, like, we have tried everything. We've tried to go to Kamala Harris and, and do a, um, you know, a mediation. Court of Appeals agreed to a mediation, but mediation don't happen in criminal cases, only civil cases. And we've tried all these things and we've had all the support. Um, um, Sister Helen Prejean wrote letters to the governor, a personal friend of hers. We tried all these things. And when we finally submitted the commutation, he had just commuted his um, first little group. Mm -hmm. Literally that weekend, we submitted the Monday after. And within three weeks, I was blessed enough to be interviewed. Um, it was really rushed. It was really difficult. And once again, I helped make change because of that. Um, the staff decided it was he needed to go to shift change. There was no other officers in the entire institution that could take over watching the BPH room. And so I had to leave my hearing um, 45 minutes into my hearing. Now, this is our only opportunity oh, as LWAPs to have someone listen that we have changed, grown, and, and made some progress in life. But I did it. I, you know, I handled it. I just said, this yes. is not acceptable and made changes for others that they were treated with the respect and dignity that they needed in their hearings um, and their interviews, basically. But th those that's their only opportunity. And we didn't have that. So I kept having doubt, like maybe I didn't do enough. And um, the second set of commutations were, um, were, we didn't know it, but were about to take place. And everybody's like, um, as it happened, everybody's like, that would have been perfect. It was the day before your birthday. That You mm. should have been on that list. And I said, no, I, I shouldn't have been. I am going to be commuted in December. Now, I said it. Everyone always believed I would go home. I never believed it. I kept saying it and putting it out there in the universe, but I never, ever believed it. <laughs> I wanted December because that was my brother's birthday. Aww. And so I needed Christmas Eve to be the day that I was commuted. And um, Kobe and them had come for a, um, a legal visit. And so they're like, are you going to be okay? Like, I'm worried about you. And um, my domestic violence group is called Love, Living Outside Violence every day it's now their group but I still claim it and, for you. <laughs> uh, and so I was supposed to be interviewed by the chief deputy warden to um, help facilitate new training to happen and so I leave my legal visit and of course we're completely slammed down so nobody's moving anywhere and my brain's just filled with you know I hope somebody's called today and the officer came and told me that I had to go meet with the chief deputy warden at B program and I didn't believe for a minute and I kept saying Lord let it be your time your will and but he better not be calling me at 3:45 on a <laughs> on a Friday for this meeting this better be this and uh, I didn't believe it until I actually had that moment. Um, my brother was up on a scaffolding. He's an electrician. And he was 60 foot high. And, and one of the things the warden and the governor does is they allow you to call your loved ones. And so I tell him, and he doesn't even, he's like, awesome. Will you be home tomorrow? I want you home tomorrow. Um, okay, I'll call you in a minute. Like he could call me and hung up. And I'm like, 
he just hung up on me when I was just, yeah, I'm going home. Because uh, <laughs> he was so overwhelmed. Oh, um, but that wow. was the blessing that happened. And then on the way back, I just kept thinking, I'm completely by myself. It's 5 o'clock at night, so it's count time. And um, I'm uh, count had just happened. Count had just cleared. And I'm walking back, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm not going to die in prison. And I lose it. Aww. Oh, Kelly. Because that's what every single Elwap feels, that they're going to die there. And that's what is intended. And that is not okay. Every single person has the ability to change, grow, and mature. And the only way to give them that dignity back is to re-look at what the sentencing laws look like how people are sentenced, why they're sentenced that way, who's accountable for what in a crime, and stop looking at if somebody is redeemable when they go to board, but look at what they're, how they can change, grow, and mature before they're sentenced. When, when someone is, is going to board, they're looking at what happened in their childhood and why they make the, the decisions they make and, and where they are. If they did that before sentencing, we would not have the type of sentencing we have today. Yeah. We would not have a, a person sitting in prison for decades saying, but I've made all these changes and one stupid decision to get behind the wheel or have road rage at somebody cutting me off and risking m my child in, in the car and I make a stupid decision behind that. Now I have the rest of my life that I'm paying for and every single person around me is paying for as well. And we can make that change as a society in the state of California, can make the change to look at how we do this. But if we don't all stand up together, there, no one's going to listen because it seems too big. But we do have the possibility to do that. I agree. I agree. And it starts with seeing people as human beings, please. These are human beings. These aren't just criminals. These are human beings. And they have feelings and dreams and desires and thought processes and challenges like every single one of us. Kelly, I would love for you to take a few minutes to talk about um, the campaign that's coming up. Awesome. Okay. Okay. So March 9th, we're in Sacramento to uh, do the drop LWAP rally. Anyone uh, feel free, send your families. Um, I am blessed enough to have a lot of families waiting to meet me mm -hmm. um, that we support. Um, part of the campaign um, for California Coalition of Women Prisoners is the, um, working with Fuel and uh, at least 100 other organizations to drop LWAP to look at what sentencing looks like and ending mass incarceration. In order to do that, we have to lift up everybody's voice, not just a few. So I'm hoping that friends and families will engage in the campaign. Most uh, families feel like they were silenced in court mm -hmm. and they don't know how to raise their voice again. Now there's a lot of shame and grief and, and guilt about that, but now are getting active and I'm, I'm 
blessed but um, definitely challenged to constantly write to individuals and contact loved ones and, and get them involved in the campaign. So I hope more people choose to get involved. Um, you can always get information um, at the California Coalition for Women Prisoners at uh, 44, uh, 4400 Market, Oakland, uh, 94608. Mm -hmm, I um, think so. <laughs> <laughs> takes me a minute. Um but I hope that people will start writing there and engaging in the campaign. I know that every person that's listening has some LWAP around them that may not know about the campaign. And so we're looking at new postcards uh, demonstrating the individuals, not the numbers in prison, not the crime, not you know why they should be punished, but who they are as people and how they've changed and grown. And how their families are also affected. Kids, grandkids, nieces and nephews are affected by these, this mass incarceration that has become an industry, not a place of rehabilitation. Absolutely. Okay, again, what's happening on March 9th? And the where can people go? Drop LWAP Rally in Sacramento. Okay. Feel free to look at our website um, at... Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter, it's everywhere. Okay. And can they find that as Drop LWAP or CCWP? Both. Okay, both. So look for Drop LWAP. Um, go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, yeah. possibly. Okay, yeah, all the social media, they got it going on. Um, and definitely check out their website, CCWP, California Coalition for Women Prisoners. Um, and you can write to them again at 4400 Market Street, Oakland, California, 94608. Kelly, thank you so much. This has been amazing, and I would love to have you back. I feel like there's just always so much more to talk about, but I wanted to have you on definitely before your um, before the event. Um, and also, Dijanette, who's also with California Coalition for Women's Prisoners, will be on the panel of the Solitary Man, which I mentioned at the beginning of the show. We are going to end the show today. Um, I want to... Um, tell you, um, introduce to you a woman who is, um, um, excuse me, uh, there is a an event that is a, a protest event that's going to be happening at um, on Monday. And I want to make sure that you um, hear from her. Her name is D. Um, Deanna Cruz is a family advocate with a loved one incarcerated at Correctional Training Facility in Soledad, California. And um, she's been organizing protests across the state with other family members and organizations such as Silicon Valley Debug, Youth Justice Coalition, Prison Advocacy Network, and Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee um, to bring about awareness of the violence CDC Small R has been creating across the the state and this is her talking about her um the event that's going to be happening okay give me one more second because i realize i need to put this on speaker so you can actually hear her have united along with several organizations to attempt to stop the setup violence CDCR has created inside California state prisons. Beginning mid-year 2018, CDCR began the forced integration of the general population and sensitive needs yard population, previously known as protective custody, with a new program called non-designated programming facilities or NDPF. 
This merge has caused major disturbances in the lower level prisons, including rioting, stabbings, slashings, beatings, and much, much more. Our loved ones inside the walls are not only being injured by the other classification of individuals, but they are being injured by staff themselves when they use their so-called non-lethal weapons. They're using such weapons and using them in a lethal way by shooting our loved ones in the face at close range, causing major injuries. CDCR has also been causing major violence in the Central Valley State Prison since late 2018 with the so-called incremental releases or IRs. Incremental releases are the integration of known enemies in the Central Valley State Prisons, most specifically uh, Correctional Training Facility, Pleasant Valley State Prison, and Corcoran State Prison. Both integrations, NDPS, and incremental releases are causing extreme amount of violence, and therefore, we as family members are calling them gladiator fights. CDCR is knowingly and intentionally placing our loved ones in hostile, violent environments, which leads to violence and in turn lead to long-term lockdown environments. Lockdowns have been present at these three facilities since late 2018. CTF in Soledad was on lockdown for seven months and is already going on six months. Corcoran Street Prison was on lockdown for nine months and they're on lockdown again right now. Our loved ones are on survival mode right now. After the violence occurred, some have been written up, sent to the whole, lost parole dates, and been sent to the DA for additional charges of attempted murder. Both these integrations defeat the point of rehabilitation in CDCR. CDCR needs to keep populations separated when warranted for the safety and security of our loved ones. So on March 2nd, 2020, at the state capitol at 2.30 p.m. in room 437, CDCR will be present to their for their first budget hearing and Secretary Ralph Diaz will be present. The budget hearing will mainly be in regards to prison closure and staff misconduct. Family members are simply going to state that CDCR is justifying their increase in budget because of the violence they are creating. In regards to prison closures, the violence that's being created by CDCR is actually keeping our loved ones in prison longer due to loss of good time credits, write-ups, no programming, and additional prison terms. Staff misconduct, well, where do I begin? CDCR has been falsifying documents, retaliating against families, injuring our loved ones, and much, much more. The budget hearing is a time to show legislators not only about the violence, but an urgency to stop the violence in regards to the integration of NDPF and incremental releases. Please help our our incarcerated loved ones. Give them a voice on March 2nd, 2020 at the state capitol. CDCR attempts to silence them, but the families have given them a voice, the voice they deserve. They need us. They need you. Please come and support. Okay, folks. So that was Dee, and she was letting us know about the event or the, the protest that's happening. So please join them. Again, that is March 2nd, 2020 at 2.30 p.m. in room 437 at the State Capitol. I want to thank you um, for joining me this morning. Um, stay beautiful. Stay strong. And please um, do what you can to be um, in uplifting the humanity of yourself and those around you. Never, ever 
lose your humanity. And again, I am going to, I've always been wanting to play this song by um, India Ari. And let's see if I can actually get it going this time. And it looks like she really doesn't want me to play this song, which I find so interesting. Okay, so we're going to go with Judith Hill. All right, here we go. And in just a few minutes, we are going to get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer. Have a great week. San Francisco at 89.5 FM and KPOO.com on the internet.